Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Welcome to the third episode in our series on the history of abortion and birth control in America. We left off in our last episode discussing the conservatism of the late 1940s and the 1950s and how that affected women's reproductive rights. Today, we're picking up there to talk more about women's reproductive health in the late 20th century with some big key events, uh, Roe v. Wade and the invention of the hormonal birth control pill. I'm Elizabeth Garner Masaryk. And I'm Sarah Hanley Cousins. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. In the 1950s and 60s, healthcare became more consolidated in medical hands. Hospitals began developing abortion panels to protect themselves from lawsuits and surveillance from the state. Because of this, it became much harder to obtain a therapeutic abortion. And women's needs and their knowledge of their own bodies, something we talked about a lot in the last episode, was completely taken out of the official decision making by doctors and the state. During the 50s and 60s, abortions were pushed underground and the death rate rose. Particularly, this affected women of color. The rising death rate prompted both feminists and medical personnel, including psychiatrists, to begin pushing for more lenient abortion laws. And one thing to remember, and that's clear from the historical record, is that abortion and birth control were needed and widely practiced throughout the 20th century. The only thing that changed were the means for procuring abortion and birth control as the medical and state surveillance changed. The increased restrictions and policing on abortions during the post-war period drove the death rate up. 
And of course, the death rate from illegal abortion was higher for women of color because they had limited access to safe hospital abortions. In New York City, between 1951 and 1962, illegal abortion-related deaths for women of color doubled. In Cook County Hospital in Chicago, the number of illegal abortion-related complications treated rose from about 1,000 per year in 1939 to over 3,000 per year in 1959. Government estimates in the late 1960s and 1970s estimated that annual illegal abortion rates each year fluctuated between 200,000 and 1.2 million. It's really staggering it numbers is. there. These, these are, and you know, just as a side note, like Cook Cook County or you know the Chicago Hospital basically had to create an entire ward just to take care of women who were coming in with complications from illegal abortions. That's unbelievable. It's it is. <laughs> it really is. That's why we're telling the story, right? right? Yeah. If women of color were able to gain access to a hospital abortion, many were actually forced to accept sterilization in return. Right. A Chicago study in the 1940s showed that 67% of women who received abortions at a particular hospital servicing low-income patients were also sterilized. Many black women across the country were sterilized against their will or their knowledge well into the late 1960s. Yeah, it wasn't, and sorry to kind of jump in here, but I, from what I understand, it may have actually, though, now that I say this, not been tied as much to abortion as it was to deliveries, births. But in California and in the Southwest, wasn't there a rash of um, Chicana women who were sterilized also? Absolutely. Chicana women and then also the Native American yeah. um, population also as well. So basically, if a woman was going in for any kind of gynecological, right. I don't want to say surgery, but birth service, abortion yeah. service. Yeah. Birth, abortion, asking for birth control, um, what have you. It was always kind of this give and take. Well, you mm-hmm. know what? You can get this if in return you get sterilized. Right. And that's if consent was even asked. A lot of the times consent wasn't asked right. and women would find out well after the fact. That they that, woke up from twilight sleep or something like mm-hmm. that and they had been or sterilized. Or even many years yeah. later. Right. There's, there's, there's um, lots of instances of women not even knowing this happened to them until they were trying to have a child with yes. their husband later in life and went in and asked, why can't I get pregnant? And the doctor right. was like, well, you're sterile. Yeah. More affluent white women with hospital and doctor connections were much more likely to receive a therapeutic abortion than working class women or people of color. A study in New York found that white women who were um, private patients at area hospitals, so private patients meaning could pay out of pocket essentially, um, they received therapeutic abortions in numbers four times greater than women in public hospital wards, whether they were white, black, or Puerto Rican. Class inequality was practically built into the system. For example, a San Francisco hospital allowed private patients to have a therapeutic abortion with the approval of only one staff obstetrician. On the other hand, public clinic cases required the review of the entire OBGYN staff, and then a vote was taken by nine professors that was on the staff. For the most part, women did not voluntarily talk about abortion in public. 
Um, and I think one thing uh, that we might want to just remind our listeners too is, is a therapeutic abortion. So although abortions were illegal, there was this gray area in the law where a therapeutic abortion could be performed legally. And so what that ends up doing is that women who have private access to healthcare professionals that quote unquote, trust them, right, that that they have a relationship with, those women who can afford that kind of a relationship with a doctor are getting therapeutic abortions at a much higher rate than than working class women and women who can't afford kind of this this one on one privacy with a doctor, right, who are having to go into hospitals, charity hospitals, right, right? Yeah. you know, or, or public publicly funded hospitals. Right. right. So it creates an inequality in the care basically between demographics and between class. Right. Economically. Right. And another thing that I maybe we should clarify again, I think we talked about this in the last episode, but just as a reminder that when we say therapeutic abortion, we mean that that's an abortion that's performed, obviously, as you indicated, by a physician um, because abortion is illegal, you can go to your doctor and essentially they make the case that the abortion is therapeutic. It, there's a, a medical need for that abortion, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it Therapeutic sort of makes it sound as though um, there are extenuating circumstances, right? That it's right. like maybe like psychological. Well, and that's, and, and that's kind of what I wanted to go back to. I mean, at the beginning mm -hmm. or earlier I had, or you had mentioned one of us. Psychiatrists. You know, that yeah. psychiatrists start, start pushing for this so, because therapeutic abortions that, that's one of the the reasons that that especially white women are getting them mm. like it's it's going to be a psychological burden okay, so on this woman it if is has... almost therapeutic exactly yeah. so therapeutic covers the gamut from there is a medical problem and somebody's right. going to die if this abortion doesn't happen mm -hmm. to this is going to create a hardship for this woman whether she has right. seven kids or she's not ready to ha have a kid or, or right. whatever you know so right. psychiatrists kind of start becoming part of the conversation right yeah which has been part of the conversation as we talked about in the last one in the 1930s you know women couldn't afford more children so they want to have abortions or they want to get birth control so it's not like the conversation changed it's just again kind of discourse in the law and the medical profession and, and their interaction with women seeking abortion changes right as time goes on for the most part women did not voluntarily talk about abortion in public however this changed in the 1960s and three major incidents really changed public discourse about abortion in 1961 west german pediatricians noticed that the number of babies born with the deformity of shortened limbs had tripled since the year before Doctors figured out that thalidomide, a drug used in sleeping pills, cough syrups, and other over-the-counter medications sold in West Germany and England, was the cause of these deformities. The drug also caused many brain-damaged babies, miscarriages, stillbirths, and early infant deaths. Although it wasn't in wide use in America, physicians had handed out over 1,000 pills to their American patients. Sherry Finkbein was an American woman who had taken a sleeping pill containing thalidomide and saw a therapeutic abortion after learning of the high risk of birth defects. She was the first woman to publicly share her desire to have an abortion and gained the support and, of course, the ire of many Americans. Finkbein was a white middle class mother, pregnant with her fifth child, who talked openly with the press about her sadness as she learned of the damage done to her developing fetus. The press followed her story closely and watched as doctors denied her a therapeutic abortion for fear of prosecution. 
Finkbein and her husband traveled to Sweden to obtain an abortion. A Gallup poll showed that 52% of Americans agreed that she had done, quote, the right thing. I just want to pause here for one second to say that it's sort of a story in my husband's family that his grandmother, his his family is from Scotland, um, his grandmother took thalidomide mm. throughout her pregnancy with my husband's father. And so they uh, narrowly avoided, I guess, any problems because he was born, you know, with no no abnormalities. So mm. I just think that that's an interesting reminder that this was not very long ago, right? No, people that we people that we know yes. uh, took thalidomide during their lives. Right. So just I I think that that's really interesting. A rubella epidemic hit the west coast of the United States in 1963 and by 1965 had spread across the United States and proved to be the largest rubella epidemic in 20 years. Infectious disease specialists warned Americans that pregnant women who contracted rubella within the early stages of pregnancy were at a 50% higher risk of delivering a baby with serious malformations and limited brain capability. CBS television news announced that rubella was a, quote, far more widespread threat to unborn babies than even thalidomide. This, again, increased the public discourse on abortion and the rights of women to legally obtain them. At this, I find really interesting because you can avoid thalidomide, mm-hmm. right? You can just not take thalidomide. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot. It's a very different story to try to avoid an infectious disease that's rampaging across the United States. Right. And going off of that, I think that this is very much a conversation that's happening right now or maybe has died down in recent months. But certainly over the summer, um, the concern over the birth defects caused by the Zika virus in Central and South America, Mm -hmm. um, babies being um, born with um, microcephaly. Right. Being born with uh, very, very small brains or with almost no brain at all. Mm. And that has reawakened the debate in Central and South America about whether or not to make abortion legal. Because and so it sort of reawakened conversations in those countries about, you know, if we are at risk of these terrible birth defects, then we need to have access to what, you know, they might term therapeutic abortions. Right. And Zika, we should remind listeners, is contracted from mosquitoes right so right so again cannot avoid right (laughs) mosquitoes yeah they sneak in everywhere right yeah so back to the to the u.s 1960s and the subsequent demand for abortion by primarily white middle-class women it really changed the discourse about abortion for one of shame and quote back alley butchers to a discussion about medical informed consent disability and the right not to give birth by changing the the discourse or the talk to one of quality of life for both mother and potentially disabled babies, pregnant women and many in the medical profession impacted the politics of abortion. The rubella epidemic caused a cultural and a social change surrounding the understanding of abortion. And I think, too, just to kind of bang people over the head with this, like once white women start talking about right. it, then it's OK. Yeah. Right. Then it's OK to talk about it. Right. Um, and. And I think too. I, know, was, I, I, I want to say in quotes, okay, right? Yeah, <laughs> just, it, it's since not, you guys can't see me. <laughs> yeah, it's not. You know, all of a sudden, it's it's perfectly fine, perfectly acceptable. Um, but I think also 
not only that it's white middle class women, that's certainly a, a huge part of it, but also that it's uh, the reason that they're seeking abortions is this thing that's outside of their control, right? Mm -hmm. It's beyond their control. Mm -hmm. They're not asking for abortion access because they had um, extramarital sex and they don't want to have a baby, right? Mm -hmm. This is almost divorcing it from the morality issues around sexuality mm -hmm. and instead saying I'm an even better mother because I don't want my baby to suffer mm -hmm. changes the way that people talk about this about abortion absolutely so something like is biologically natural in quotes as well um, as reproduction actually kind of becomes a construct of cultural and social environment in this period. Um, so the rubella epidemic of the 60s, it, it changed the social aspect of the politics of abortions, and it makes it more acceptable to, to many people and doctors when it is kind of divorced from its sexuality right. in a way. Um, so these two causes of birth defects increase the public discourse over the authority of the state or, or even over doctors themselves um, that they had in matters of women's health caused serious questioning of pre-existing laws surrounding medicine and abortion, such as patient rights, informed consent, disability, and racial discrimination in healthcare. Now, this brings us, I think, to a really important point in this story, a very contentious point in this story. Although <laughs> I say that this is an episode that's entirely about abortion and birth control. I think everything is contentious, right? This episode is making some people very, very angry. mad, <laughs> um, as the other ones have. But we have something here that very much continues to be a, a real topic of content or a real bone of contention, I should say. And that's this linking of disability and abortion. Mm -hmm. The women who advocated for abortion access because of the threat of rubella or of thalidomide were doing so because of the perceived threat of rubella-related disability or thalidomide-related mm -hmm. disabilities. Women who feared their children may be disabled as a result of those things in the 1960s were operating within a society that feared and hated disabilities. Children were warehoused, kept in institutions, and stigmatized. Children with differences that today could be managed, pe people who could grow up and, and navigate society, um, like people with Down syndrome, were strongly encouraged by their doctors to be taken to institutions rather than to live at home with their families. Meaning that these kinds of disabilities were almost invisible. They, they almost didn't exist. You certainly would not have the kind of mainstreaming or inclusion in um, schools that we have today, which leads many of us to have grown up with people that have um, intellectual or developmental differences, right? right. Mm -hmm. That didn't exist at the time. So they almost, it was almost as though this was invisible. You, so you didn't see these children in the classroom or in the church or in the grocery store. There were no educational opportunities, no IDEA or ADA. So for many women, abortion was the safer and perhaps in their minds, more loving choice. But the connection between disability and abortion was also really problematic and remains really problematic. Mm -hmm. They were making the assumption that a life with a disability is so abnormal, so atrocious, that it's better to just not be born. Yet many disability activists argue now that the reason that life was so, quote unquote, horrific for disabled children in the 60s was not because of the inherent differences or needs that come with a disability, but because of society itself that created that inaccessibility and stigma. Mm -hmm. um, of course, this gets into 
the differences in um, the modes of understanding disability, right? We have a medical model of disability that's really the um, hegemonic or overarching one, which says that disability is a medical problem that can be and should be cured by doctors. But the one that disability activists and scholars espouse is the social model, which actually argues that the only reason disabilities are disabilities is because of society, because of an ableist society that um, makes it difficult, sometimes impossible for people to live typical lives. Right. It's um, the difference between building stairs and building ramps. In exactly. A very simplistic term. Right. If that's if you're trying to wrap your head around that. Exactly. Why do right. we have to build stairs? Why can't we have ramps everywhere? I mean, right. If you can think of it in those terms, you can kind of see the difference between a medical model yeah. and a social model. Yeah. You, you're not really disabled if you live in a society where you can do everything that everyone else can do because of the way that the, your environment is structured. Right. right? right. The disability stops existing. Right. Um, in a sense, of course, you know, the, the, the physical difference, the bodily difference is still there, but it's not disabling. Does that made sense? That yeah, makes sense? Okay. absolutely. Yeah. This, this gets, I have so much of an easier time explaining this in like academia speak than I do in like real people talk. Yeah. I, I mean, was teaching this to my students the other day and I was like really struggling to translate it. And I think they got it eventually, but. Well, I mean, I even hesitated bringing up the idea of like stairs versus ramps because then you're only thinking of disabilities in a physical sense. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I Mm -hmm. mean, it's it's, it's so much deeper than that. And maybe we should do a whole podcast on this. I think think that's a great idea. (laughs) Try to break it apart. The other example that I gave, I gave my students two examples to sort of wrap their heads around this. And one was that um, I was at a conference once uh, where one of the keynote speakers used a a wheelchair and the two speakers ahead of this person the first one went up and the podium was on a stage Mm. went up onto the stage gave their part of the talk came down second person up on stage gave their talk at the podium came down came to the third person the person who used the wheelchair and it was only then that all the organizers of the conference and everyone who was there realized that there was actually no way for him to get onto the stage and there was no movable mic so he ended up giving his part of this of the talk from the you know bottom of the stage where no one could hear him mm. because of the physical environment that he was giving this talk in. Mm-hmm. The other example that I gave my students to try to combat this idea that disabilities are only physical was about autism and having more spaces in our society that are low stimulus, right? Like low light, low sound, kind of safe environments for autistic children without the kind of triggering things, lights, noises, chaos, right? That can sometimes trigger autistic children into kind of panic. And how we really only find that in places that are having a dedicated like afternoon for children with autism, Mm -hmm. right? Instead Mm -hmm. of just that being the norm. So and that, and that 30 years ago, that wasn't an issue, right? Because that kind of stimulus wasn't in our face all the time. Right. We weren't looking at screens and mm-hmm. lights and sounds and music, maybe not 40 years, but 60 years, you know, sure. That, that wasn't an issue before. So, so now it's, it's also in our face more. Yeah. And so even like the, the, the social and the cultural changes in our society then bring out other quote-unquote disabilities that maybe we didn't even know about before because it wasn't an issue. Right. right? And 40, 60 years ago, those children would have been institutionalized, right? They wouldn't have even been a part of our society that we would have had to think about changing those things because they wouldn't have been around. Right. 
um, that was a long story about the medical versus social model. Hopefully that was useful. Well, it, but I think it is important for us to really kind of dig into that <clears throat> in a story or in a discussion of abortion because it yeah. makes it really sticky. And I mean, yeah. if it's, it has to be brought up and it has mm-hmm. to be discussed. And I think sometimes pro-choice advocates tend to, to try to avoid that discussion. Yeah. And I, I don't think that's fair. I think we as historians need to, to bring it up and, yeah. and present everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this remains a a really hotly debated subject as many people, many pro-choice advocates still believe that you should have the right to abort if a fetus is disabled. This is something called selective abortion. While disability rights activists, on the other hand, argue that this is based on the assumption that disabled lives are not worth living. This is also often extended further, that aborting fetuses with disabilities is actually the beginning of a slippery slope. What's to stop us then from simply aborting all fetuses diagnosed with, say, Down syndrome and eliminating Down syndrome or minimizing it as much as possible from the population? That's eugenics, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's bioengineering the human race. Mm -hmm. However, it is important to articulate here that disability rights activists are not anti-abortion. However, the position is more that uh, they're pro-all choice. In other words, the choice to not have an abortion if you're carrying a fetus with a disability. The fear is that there may come a time when it's required, either by law or by pressure or by stigma, to abort all disabled fetuses. Um, And this has become even more of an issue of debate in recent years as we've been able to screen for disabilities and abnormalities earlier and earlier and earlier in pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's of concern right now is that while, no, there aren't any laws that say that, you know, um, you had this blood test and your blood test says that you're likely to be having a child with Down syndrome, um, you have to have an abortion, right? There's no laws that say that. But the concern right now is that when you have that testing very, very early, And the doctor looks at you and says, do you understand what you're getting into? This is going to be so difficult. You begin thinking about all of the money and the time and the rest of your life being, you know, sunk into caring for a child with profound disabilities and that that pressures people into having abortions that aren't necessary. And it further stigmatizes disabilities that um, if we if we stopped stigmatizing them and instead kind of poured energy into um, creating a less ableist society, they would be less disabling. Those, right. those ailments or those um, abnormalities would be less disabling. Right. I think also in, in our society, and especially as there's um, criticism against government spending, education spending, the, the growth of things like disability and Social Security disability uh, funding, Medicare, Medicaid, a lot of those debates also have relevance to the lives of people with disabilities, especially disabled children, right? If we Mm -hmm. cut Medicaid, um, that cuts a lot of the services that these children rely on. And so that, I think, is part of this fear that if we're trying to cut down on government spending, maybe that could be then kind of rolled into a pressure to eliminate people with disabilities from from the human race, right? Um, Because then it becomes, well, why did you choose to have a child with Down syndrome? Why did you choose to have a child with spina bifida when you could have aborted and avoided this public charge? Right, right. 
All right, so back to our, our narrative back in the 1960s. Uh, many Americans believed that the decision to have an abortion should remain a private one between a woman and her doctor. Ironically, in the 20th century, physicians became some of the leading voices championing more liberalized abortion accessibility. So if you remember back in our first episode on family limitation in America, physicians were the ones trying to regulate abortion uh, so that they would have more professional power over women's reproduction and over kind of the medical field in general. But by 1967, a survey found that 87% of American physicians favored a liberalization of the country's abortion laws. On the contrary, those against access to abortion, especially the Catholic Church, began to form a stronger movement in opposition to relaxing abortion laws. Feminism and resistance at the grassroots level also became a driving force towards laws against abortion repeal. Underground movements such as Jane in Chicago and the Society for Humane Abortion in California created their own illegal abortion networks in order to provide safe abortions for those seeking them. Between 1967 and 1973, Jane in Chicago provided approximately 3,000 safe but illegal abortions per year. Wow. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you read, like, this was all just an underground network, right? And, and these yeah. women were basically teaching each other how to do this. And then, you know, if you needed an abortion, word on the street, you go to Jane, you know, and you'd go and it was, it was, it was safe. It was sterile. You know, mm -hmm. they were using medical grade equipment. Right. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. And I, one thing that I, if I can just sort of interject, one thing that I've already begun hearing in recent days in our current political environment is feminists starting to imagine a future in which we have to have systems like Jane again mm -hmm. um, to try to kind of almost create an underground railroad of sorts where women from states uh, with very restrictive abortion access like Texas can be sort of um, transported by like-minded women up to states like New York, which it's very likely will continue to have abortion access, even if Roe v. Wade was to be overturned. Yeah. I mean, the, right now there's a, um, right now there's an entity out of Texas. Um, it's called Jane's Due Process. And oh, it's, really? it's actually, they, and forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but they, they, they basically take donations and they help women or girls who are underage. So who need parental consent or whatever, mm -hmm. They help them and they either help them to get some kind of injunction or whatever to kind of overrule that, or it is that they help them go to another state mm. to get an abortion. I can't remember which, but, but I mean, but those, either way, those kind yeah. of organizations are already in effect, right. in effect. And I mean, if things keep kind of moving the way that they seem to be moving, I think that like, you're right. I mean, I think that's just going to become more and more of a reality. Mm hmm. Um, by the mid-1960s, women had formed numerous groups across the country organizing to push the repeal of abortion laws. Groups planned speak-outs where women publicly stood up and spoke about their illegal abortions. This move from private to public discourse greatly shifted the power dynamic in the abortion fight. In 1970, we have um, the beginning of the major change in this story. Uh, in 1970, a young woman named Norma McCorvey discovered that she was pregnant with her third child. Norma had had a very difficult life. She had a, a really troubled childhood. She married very, very young to an abusive man who beat her when she told him that she was pregnant for the first time. 
So by the time she got to this third pregnancy, she really did not want another child. But it was illegal in Texas, where she lived, to get an abortion except in instances of rape or incest. Norma McCorvey then uh, invented a horrific story that she had been gang raped while she was working at a carnival. When she realized that she was pregnant from this so-called gang rape, she sought out an abortion, but had no success in finding a doctor that would perform the procedure, even with this invented story. Getting desperate, she thought about maybe giving the child up for adoption. And so as she was trying to explore that option, she had to meet with some lawyers who might arrange for private adoptions. One of the lawyers she met with asked her if she might consider talking to another lawyer, a woman named Linda Coffey. She agreed, and not that long after, Norma McCorvey met with Linda Coffey and another attorney named Sarah Weddington, who were actually looking for a woman to be a plaintiff to challenge Texas's restrictive abortion laws. Court cases move very slowly, and though uh, McCorvey agreed to be the, the plaintiff in this test case, uh, by the time the, the case, you know, kind of churned its way around, um, McCorvey had already delivered her baby and given it up for adoption. So, you know, we'll explain how the case unfolds, but either way, you know, McCorvey didn't get her abortion. Coffee and Weddington were both female attorneys looking to make a difference. And this seemed like something that they could do to aid the women's movement with the skills that they had. In 1970, the Texas law was found unconstitutional by a three-judge panel of the Texas District Court. It was appealed, of course, and that same year it was taken up by the Supreme Court of the United States. By this point, McCorvey was using the name Jane Roe in the case in order to protect her privacy. After all, I think it's um, easy to forget that this was very dangerous for her, right, to be so um, blatantly associated with a case um, asking for access to an abortion. Mm -hmm. The arguments were scheduled for December 12th, 1971. The arguments did not go smoothly. The attorneys on both sides were not necessarily primed for appearing before the highest court in the land. But as they went on, McCorvey's lawyers sharpened their talents. In a 7-2 decision led by Justice Harry Blackman, the court ruled that the Texas law violated the right to privacy and that there was a, quote, zone of privacy around laws that attempted to legislate marriage, reproduction, and child-rearing. They called upon the previous case, Griswold v. Connecticut. Are you, you're coming, we're coming back to Griswold v. Connecticut. We're going to come back to that one, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of roll around back to Griswold v. Connecticut and what that said in a minute, um, which was a case over whether or not Connecticut had the right to outlaw birth control for married couples, which had ruled that the right to privacy, in other words, privacy within a marriage, was a fundamental and substantive right and that the state could not legislate the decisions and actions undertaken within a marriage. Um, they sort of expanded that idea of privacy, that if it's within, if you have the right to privacy within a marriage, decision-making within a marriage, women individually have the right to privacy in the decision-making over their own bodies. Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, married women. Correct. Wait. Oh, in Connecticut. Right. In, in Griswold v. Connecticut, right. but not in Roe. True. Um, Jane Roe was not married. True. Um, she had been married, but l later divorced. I want to pause here just to say that the story of Jane Roe slash Norma McCorvey is very, very complicated. 
Uh, McCorvey ultimately gave up all three of her children um, to be raised by others. Her first child, her daughter from her marriage, was raised by her mother. The other two were given up for adoption. Later in life, she identified as a lesbian or a, a bisexual at various points. She identified it at, in, with different terms. When she came out in the 1980s as the plaintiff in the case, because remember, she went as Jane Roe, um, so her name wasn't associated with it. In the 1980s, when she did uh, announce that it was her, um, she was viciously attacked. People sent her death threats. Someone shot out the windows of her home. People called her a baby killer and spit at her on the street. She was an ardent and vocal advocate for abortion rights. But then later in life, she underwent religious conversions twice, actually, first as an evangelical Christian. And then again, she converted and became Roman Catholic. And as she underwent these uh, conversions, she publicly changed her positions and became quite conservative and very anti-abortion. At one point, she even suggested that it was pro-abortion activists who caused violence against abortion providers. In other words, they brought it upon themselves. She wasn't exactly what either side wanted as a hero. She was fascinating, complex, and entirely an individual. But at the same time, many scholars have have argued that she was used by both sides of the debate. And many have criticized her for being um, sort of weak willed in all of this and that she kind of flipped from side to side on a whim and at the pressure of whoever she was associated with at that time in her life right like at one point she's this very vocal abortion access advocate and then at the next point she's um she's you know marching on washington as part of the march for life right like this very it just it kind of frustrated people that she kind of could flip that easily or that um, simply. And I pulled this quote. This comes out of her autobiography um, because I think that it's really sums up something about Norma McCorvey and her role in all this. It says, I wasn't the wrong person to become Jane Roe. I wasn't the right person to become Jane Roe. I was just the person who became Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade. And my life story, warts and all, was a little piece of history. And I think that really encapsulates this case, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She wasn't a hero to either side all the time, but mm -hmm. she was the woman that got this done. Right. So many of these really important um, Supreme Court decisions, they start out as test cases. Right. So, you know, in a lot of ways, the the situation that that drives them to the Supreme Court is, I don't know if constructed is the right word, but, you know, Jane Roe comes along at the right time when certain people are looking for the right woman to push this forward, right? Right. Um, in Connecticut v. Griswold, which I'll talk about in a second, these two people that take it to the Supreme Court understand that the law has to be challenged, and so they construct a way that they can get arrested and then take it to the Supreme Court right. to be challenged. And yeah. this happens over and over and over again. Yeah. I mean, even with Rosa Parks, exactly. right? Yeah. That was in the planning. It, mm -hmm. You know, somebody was going to not get up on Plessy the Plessy B. Ferguson was the right. same thing. Yeah. Right. Plessy B. Ferguson, mm -hmm. like, like, he 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 was he was a black man who presented as white, right? He was mm -hmm. he was he was very racially mixed, right? Mm -hmm. So he goes and and sits on the train and the white person's part of the train and then basically declares that he is black right. and forces himself to or forces them to arrest him, you know. Right. To to, to kind of 
to force their hand to force right. their hand and and then to take these cases yeah. further and i this is i just this is so interesting to me because what then ends up happening is that we rewrite those stories about these supreme court cases so that now rosa parks was just this poor working lady <laughs> Who was so tired, her feet hurt, and all she wanted to do was sit down on that bus, right? Yeah. And Rosa Parks was like a badass civil rights uh, activist. Yeah. She had you been know? doing this for yeah. a long time. Yeah, and she time. was like ready to get arrested, right? right? She right. was in there as loaded was, for bear. As were, were other people, yeah. right? It's just, you know, it was the right moment, the right exactly. time. And that's how a lot yeah. of these kind of cases come about. Right. And, and that also, I think, um, points out just how unusual... Jane Roe was because she was in the right t- place right. at the right time, but she wasn't an activist. She wasn't in it um, like Nor- Norma Parks, Rosa Parks was, right? right? She wasn't in it um, for the fight necessarily. She actually just kind of wanted to have an abortion and get on with her life. But in another way, I, I mean, I, I, I think she probably at the, at the time was a good test subject because A, she's, she's working class. B, she's a white woman. Yeah. Right. And so in the context of the period, Unfortunately, they they need a white woman yeah. because they just with the racial tension, it, it wouldn't have gone as it wouldn't right. have gone to the Supreme Court. Right. People have more compassion for a white yeah. woman. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have had the same cultural cachet. Right. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Placing abortion in the context of the naturalness of human existence has been a classic argument in the defense of abortion. And one of the most important points in the 1973 majority opinion in Roe v. Wade by Justice Blackmun upheld that abortion had been practiced and tolerated in America since the 1600s. Um, you know, so he's basically saying in the majority opinion, look, women have been doing this since America's existence, right? So who are we to, to right. regulate? Mm-hmm. Uh, Another important point from this ruling is that the court stated that fetuses were not legally considered persons and therefore not covered by the Constitution. While there were and are some who believed that fetuses count as people, others do not. So there is no consensus. Texas, according to SCOTUS, was taking only one group into account. The decision in Roe, however, was still limited. While it did agree that abortion must be legal early in pregnancy, After the first trimester, they left the decision of when to restrict abortion to the states under the argument that this was when the state's interest in protecting the potential life would be compelling. In other words, the longer the pregnancy advanced, the more complex and complicated this became. I might add that this is where most of our current legislation and fights over abortion come from today, this aspect of allowing the states to make the decision after the first trimester. And going back to the arguments in Roe v. Wade, racial discrimination and access to abortion was also used as as an argument. Lawyers claimed that white women were more often um, able to persuade their private physicians to allow access to abortion. It was also argued that wealthy women had the means to travel to areas where abortion laws were not heavily enforced, while poor women could not. Thus, the state abortion laws were argued to be discriminatory. So far, we've spent most of our time discussing abortion, but now we want to turn toward birth control. As we mentioned in our previous podcast, Birth Control and Abortion, before Roe v. Wade, many states enacted laws against abortion and birth control in the mid to late 19th century. An 1879 Connecticut law that criminalized the encouragement or use of birth control stated that, quote, any person who uses any drug 
medicinal article or instrument for the purposes of preventing conception shall be fined not less than $40 or imprisoned not less than 60 days, end quote. The law further stated that, quote, any person who assists, abets, counsels, causes, hires, or commands another to commit any offense may be prosecuted and punished as if he were the principal offender. By the 1960s, women's rights and birth control itself had come a long way since these laws in the 1870s. We talked a great deal last time about birth control pioneer Margaret Sanger, who was the founding mother of Planned Parenthood and a very early birth control activist during the early 20th century. Um, she did not stop working in her later years by any means. She remained doggedly active in birth control research and advocacy. In the 1950s, Sanger met biologist Gregory Pincus, who had been doing some experiments with early in vitro fertilization, and asked him to begin researching how hormone therapy of some kind might be used as contraception. I guess Gregory Pincus um, made a big splash in the 1950s because he was impregnating rabbits with in vitro fertilization, which I think is kind of funny. They did not uh, realize this when they were kind of uh, having their early discussions, but there already was a scientist named Carl Gerasi living in Mexico City who had already created a pill made out of the Mexican wild yam, which functioned like a progestin analog. I'm pausing here because this makes me laugh also because it involves wild yams. And mm -hmm. have you ever seen the show Grace and Frankie? No. Okay, so I see it on my Netflix thing all the time. Like, it's, you should watch this. But... It's hysterically oh, okay. funny. Yeah. But Frankie um, makes in the, I think it's in the first season, she makes this um, lube <laughs> for older women, like specifically designed for older women who would like to have sex but are having a hard time because of dryness out of yams. <laughs> and so her, <laughs> her big selling point is that it's edible. Um, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I have so to see that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yams. Okay. But this is not the same yams. Not the same kind of yams. <laughs> this is a Mexican wild yam. This was effectively the first real birth control pill. Back in the US, Sanger helped to arrange for wealthy feminist and widow Catherine McCormick to pay for Pincus's research, Gregory Pincus's research. In 1956, the FDA approved the use of Pincus's pill for medical reasons, like irregular periods. It was, after all, still illegal in many states to provide birth control. So even though the first pill comes onto the market in the late 1950s, you technically could not prescribe it. Uh, for birth control, you could prescribe it um, as a way to regulate periods, um, to ease menstrual cramps, things like that. Mm -hmm. So what happens is this kind of huge spike in women going to their doctors and saying, oh, my cramps are horrible. <laughs> I heard that there's this new pill, right? So that even before the FDA approved the pill for birth control use, millions of people were already on it. Mm -hmm. In 1960, the FDA approved Enovid, the first real contraceptive pill. And by 1965, just five years later, 6.5 million American women were on the pill. Wow. That's a huge, that's just like, boom, right? I put that there because. No, that is. And I'm just thinking like Griswold uh, v. Connecticut is 1965. So. God, in just that moved five really quickly. Years, mm -hmm. six point five million women are on the pill. That's insane. That's that's awesome. Okay, which I think again just proves that 
there was a demand, right? Like women sure. wanted this, mm-hmm. not just women, people, right? People, families, anybody. Right. So, you know, that, 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 that just shows, right, that women wanted and expected to be able to obtain birth control from their health care providers. But laws preventing women from accessing safe birth control from their medical practitioners um, led to some pretty important court cases, as we've alluded to earlier. Estelle Griswold was the executive director of Planned Parenthood League of Connecticut, and Dr. C. Lee Buxton was a doctor and professor at at Yale Medical School. And in an attempt to get the 1897 Connecticut law overturned, um, they opened a birth control clinic. Okay, so again, when we were talking about kind of forcing the hand, right? Yeah. They they decided they wanted to overturn this, so they open up a birth a very public birth control. It's the same thing Margaret Sanger did in nineteen what nineteen fifteen or nineteen seventeen, right? So they open up a birth control clinic. Um, they're they're in business like I don't know five ten days something like that. Right. Were arrested and convicted in state court of selling contraceptives. They were each fined one hundred dollars. Um, Griswold and Buxton appealed to the Supreme Court of Errors of Connecticut, claiming that the 1897 law violated the U.S. Constitution. The Connecticut court upheld the conviction, and Griswold and Buxton then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which reviewed the case in 1965. And the Supreme Court decided in a 7-2 to two decision that the law violated the right to marital privacy and could not be enforced against married people. Um, So over the next 10 years, so between 1965 and 1973, uh, the court expanded this fundamental, substantive right to privacy beyond the bonds of marriage. Um, So in ruling that the state could not ban the use of contraceptives by anyone in the case of Einstead v. Baird in 1972. So Eisenstadt? Eisenstadt, excuse Eisenstadt. me. What did I say? Einstein. I'm not Eisenstadt. sure. Right. Um, so, but Eisenstadt referred to unmarried women. Right. Or unmarried or people. All women. Yeah. yeah. Unmarried people. Right. So, so Griswold v. Connecticut is w- married women can can get birth right. control, and then it takes another what is that seven years before all women, so un- unmarried mm-hmm. women. So, so essentially between that time, you have women kind of gaming the system in a way yeah. like they'll show up to their doctor wearing a wedding ring and and, yes. and say you know even if they're not married and say that they want um birth control right, right. um there's a lot of wink wink nudge nudging right. happening right so eisenstadt v baird is in 1972 and then roe v wade in 1973 um and then yeah and and, and uh, jump in here too like from so when were you born in the 80s yeah. like i mean i don't know i don't want to i was born in like, 1995 no i'm just kidding i don't know when i hear that i'm like god you could be my kid that's so weird so yeah i mean i just want to pause here for a second and think about this because this is so mind-blowing like how fast all of this change has happened i mean i was i was personally not all of us but me i was born in the 70s right and so um, like this was within my lifetime. And even to me, this seems like something that as like spoken about, like it was so long ago. Right. Yeah. So I'm sure that women who were born in the 90s must feel this even more so than I do. And it seems to me that this seems to be kind of a major push or or platform within the mainstream feminist movement now is to try and make millennials essentially realize how the rights that they take for granted are in the grand scheme of things very, very new. Right. 
and I think this is this can explain some of the, I don't know, dare I say frustration that older women who literally lived through this and experienced it firsthand have this frustration they have with younger women who, who don't realize really how tenuous this is and how, how new these rights are that they just take for granted. Absolutely. Not. This is something that I think that we've come back to, we've circled back to in each one of our three so far episodes in this series that is this idea of contingency, right? And that there's nothing saying that this was like a straightforward march towards progress. Mm -hmm. But I think you're absolutely right to say that young women today feel as though this is just a fundamental right that cannot be taken away because it's always been there, right? Mm -hmm. They've always had the ability to go to their pediatrician and ask for birth control when they were 16, 17 years old. That's what I did. Mm -hmm. But now I think we're seeing that those uh, rights can be very easily overturned, at least those of us either with kind of looking back towards history and how recent this has taken place. Right. Mm -hmm. And something that we're going to talk about more in the future, too, is how there wasn't a moment after Roe v. Wade where this wasn't contentious. Right. Right. People have been fighting tooth and nail since the moment Roe v. Wade was decided to get it overturned again. And there's really nothing saying that the right circumstances won't line up and it will be overturned. That's what contingency is all about, right? Anything could happen given the right circumstances. So I, I think you're absolutely right to say that this is where some of this frustration comes from. Mm-hmm. Coming off of that, yeah, with that contingency and that kind of pushback after Roe v. Wade, we have even, you know, very current instances. Yeah. And obviously we saw in that those statistics that in 1960, the FDA approves the pill. Just five years later, you have six and a half million women using hormonal birth control. Mm -hmm. Since the 1960s, birth control has occupied this really odd position in our culture. It is intensely common. The Guttmacher Institute says that 99% of women who have ever had sex have used some kind of contraceptive. 62% of all women of reproductive age are currently using a contraceptive method. 77% of married women use contraceptives. 90% of cohabitating unmarried women use some method of birth control. 89% of Catholics, 90% of Protestants, 67% of women use hormonal methods such as the pill, patch or an IUD. So this is the overwhelming majority of women use some form of birth control. That's not to say that all of them use the pill. Right. This also could refer to condoms, right? Diaphragms. Di- whatever, right. Yeah. But 89% of Catholics, 90% of Protestants, even when the Catholic Church still today teaches that birth control is a sin. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's taking the decision making out of God's hands. Um, so we have this really paradoxical thing happening. Religious women in this country, obviously, according to these statistics, are able to both follow a, a religious practice that says don't use birth control, but also use birth control. Yeah. So even though it's overwhelmingly used in this country, at the same time, this has still been the subject of debate politically, um, even just a couple of years ago um, in 2012, during some of the debates over the Affordable Care Act and some of the birth control mandate that exists within the Affordable Care Act, there was this 
sort of um, controversy that blew up between conservative political commentator Rush Limbaugh and a young woman, then a 30-year-old law student at Georgetown University named Sandra Fluke. Sandra Fluke, just as a background, was invited to speak before the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee to speak out against the conscious clause that existed with right it exists within the affordable care act and this conscious clause allows hospitals colleges other places institutions that are affiliated with religious organizations to deny access to things like birth control because they don't believe in them because of their religion right and sandra fluke testified before congress that she had this health insurance that came from Georgetown law that denied her the ability to get her birth control paid for by her insurance. And I think it's important to to point out too, from what I remember of her testimony, she was actually talking about women that she knew and and friends of hers that she knew that had endometriosis Mm. and other types of, I don't know, ailments or whatever that are helped by birth control right so it's, it wasn't even like she was from what i understand it's not like she was even going saying like i'm denied it right, right exactly and mean to cut off no that's okay. that's perfectly fine and she also was talking about just how expensive this can be i think sometimes we forget because it is so ubiquitous mm-hmm. that um depending on what kind of health insurance you have if you're using hormonal birth control it can be quite expensive so sandra fluke gives her testimony and then rush limbaugh on his show Uh, makes this statement a couple of days later. He says, So, Ms. Fluke and the rest of you feminazis out there, here's the deal. If we're going to pay for your contraceptives and thus pay for you to have sex, we want something for it. And I'll tell you what it is. We want you to post the videos online so we can all watch. So, I find this really interesting for many, many reasons. Um, one is this um, linking that he's making between sexual promiscuity and birth control. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Rush Limbaugh doesn't have 200 children. Right. Right. Rush Limbaugh doesn't. He's not driving like a, one of those conversion vans with like 17 <laughs> car seats in the back. So it's it's a reminder here that. Everyone uses birth control, and yet people still have these really strong reactions when women ask for birth control access, as though it's women sort of flaunting some sort of sexual promiscuity in the mm-hmm. in the public space, even though birth control is a men's issue too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He doesn't have 200 children. It's very much a men's issue. Right. Absolutely. So... I think that there's a subtext here. I think that a lot of times it's argued that it's a religious issue. But I think that what we're seeing is that people who say that they feel a certain way about this issue because of their religious convictions are still using birth control. Right. So I think that there's actually something else going on. What I think it is, is, is that it's about defending a certain ideological worldview that relies on women occupying, quote unquote, traditional roles, right? That if women have access to birth control, um, they don't have to be tied to the home. They don't have to be at the whim of their uteruses, right? They can make decisions about what they do. And this goes all the way back to what Margaret Sanger argued for in the Mm -hmm. early 20th century. That was her argument that if women don't have access to birth control, women can never be liberated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's still a backlash against that specifically. Yeah. And 
I hope that was articulate. No, it is. And I don't want to water down your point too, but also to bring up the, this kind of othering of women who use birth control. Yes. I can use birth control in my family because I'm a upstanding citizen, Mm -hmm. but those people over there, they can't have access to free birth control Mm -hmm. because they're going to bring down society, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, And, and it comes back again to, to class too, that a lot of times the argument is, well, um, birth control is fine, but the government shouldn't pay for it. Mm-hmm. So that means that those with means will have access to birth control again, and those without means will not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, further stigmatizing those women, right, right, and and kind of entrapping them in a in a cycle where they can't get birth control and they can't get abortions. Mm-hmm. So pro-abortion and anti-abortion advocates each proclaim deep-seated fundamental beliefs on how, when, and if abortions are to be performed. The purpose of this podcast is not to debate which side is right and which side is wrong, but to show that the questions that consume us today are nothing new. Right. 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 To show kind of the long story here. Right. Advancements in medicine have profoundly changed our understanding of fetal development. Sonograms alone show us visual pictures of bean-sized fetuses, which expectant mothers proudly display on their refrigerators and Facebook pages. Yet fetal imagery, a favorite of the anti-abortion movement, presents the fetus as a primary and autonomous thing, treating the mother's body as a mere environment in which this new life can flourish. Or essentially, the the mother's body is completely non-existent. Right. Right. The baby floats in this space vacuum devoid of the host body that it occupies, the mother's body. So a fundamental question remains, at what point does a fetus become a life? The definition of a parasite is an organism that lives on or in another organism known as the host from the body which of which it attains nutriment. So surely that defines a fetus, right? Connected to its mother through an umbilical feeding tube. But it's not that simple. Right. Right. Yeah. The human capacity to reason tells us that it is much more complex than that. And as we have learned throughout this series on women's reproduction, abortion and birth control have literally been practiced since the dawn of time. This is literally something that humans have been doing since we began walking upright. And I would imagine even before that. Notions of natural biology, and I say natural kind of in quotations, such as reproduction, are really culturally and historically constructed. So the debate pits the autonomy and the embodiment of a woman against the biopower of society and the state. And these are two very hefty factors and are not to be discussed lightly. Ethical questions aside, the survey of abortion practice and birth control and law since America's inception allows us the opportunity to explore fluctuating power relations in regards to sexuality and biopolitics. Mm -hmm. The overarching laws on abortion restriction never eliminated abortion. They just shifted discourse and action to alternate areas. Laws that were enacted over 100 years ago with the pragmatic and some would argue selfish reasons of physicians are now contested on almost exclusively moral grounds. Yet the rhetorical public discourse has historically never meshed with the private discourse and implementation of birth control and abortion. The United States continues to grapple with the ideological, scientific, and pragmatic questions that surround abortion. As new generations are born, societal dogma changes. 
the cultural construction of abortion presently is not the same as it was in the 1600s, the 1800s, nor will it be the same in the 2100s. The ever-changing abortion debate illuminates how repression and power not only function in a law-subject binary, but are also embedded within the system of society itself. Mm. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. I know it's too close. It's kind of like you're embracing, right? Like, let's snuggle and record. Should I move it an inch? If you want to. You come a long way, baby. And um, just a pause here for a minute. Um, wait, no, you have to say this because I wasn't born in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because feminism. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.